0: It's the True Penny Show, with your host, James True Penny. Welcome to the True Penny Show, my name's James True Penny, this is my show, and today in my new luxurious studio, I've rebuilt the studio. Oh yeah? Yeah, because I've got a computer that works, basically. Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, Sorry,
1: I didn't realise because everything else was the same.
0: (laughs) You can also see my desk now. Yeah, see. It's, it's that colour. Um yeah, we we are doing a brand new series for the Troopany Show called Brit is Dead, The Eulogy. It is. it's not, clearly it's not. Uh, however, we've had so many people say Brit is dead. Oh, no, it definitely is. <laughs> <Britress> is <dead. laughs> it's definitely dead. Yeah. Drawing more fans than it has yeah, done uh, in years, consistent storylines, new promotions coming along all the no, time, Brit- hotbed of talent. Brit
1: Brit is dead and Chris Brooks is is the Blank haired ghost girl that comes out of the TV.
0: The new King of the World. Yeah. Chris Brooks, New King of the World. Clearly. That's that's it. So yes, this is a series called Brit Rest is Dead. We're gonna look at this from the very beginning of professional wrestling in the United Kingdom, right up until Whenever. We're, Whenever preemptive <laughs> <very laughs> as well as satirical. And sartorial. Although <laughs> oh, there are some fine-dressed people in Brit history, well, I we will f- talk about some of them today.
1: I think we should certainly, at some point further down the line, mark the first appearance of the mullet in uh, in Brit rest We should an, do an important I, milestone.
0: I believe that was Dane Finley in 1983. Oh, I believe that was a historic date. Or as Dave said, I mean, I I didn't call it mullet. I just had long hair and thought it looked cool.
1: UK rest rather than Brit rest. There,
0: he's he's an Ulsterman. No, yeah, that's what I mean. Yes, UK, United (laughs) Kingdom, (laughs) as a Brit rest, as opposed to. Oh, how are we going to cover OTT? We can't because it's not in Britain. No, but we can talk about the Kings of the North.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Let's just see how it goes.
0: We'll, we'll, a, show, a special show called Irish Wrest is well, alive, well, and we won't yes. upset anybody then. You, mm, An incredibly well. Catholic, stroke Protestant.
1: Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yes. no, we're all right. <laughs> I've forgotten about that.
0: But we'll start with Brit wrest and the very beginning of British professional wrestling. So there is a style to Brit wrest, and say like you're a little younger than I am. tiny little bit, yes. Yes. Um, so, what, when you were young, what was British wrestling to you?
1: Um I mean British wrestling to me was the British bulldog not actually inside of British wrestling mm. but that was the only thing I knew about wrestling in Britain when I was growing up was the British bulldog because he was the one that was on TV yeah and I knew that he was either from Manchester or Leeds, depending on which company he was working for <laughs> at the time. And on what side of the bed
0: Howard Finkel got up that yeah, morning, Yeah, yes.
1: exactly, and which city they thought Americans might have heard of. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, because if you announce somebody from Ginn, no one has no idea what you're talking about. I mean,
1: I lived for nearly 20 years in Manchester, and I don't know where that is. I'm, I'm vaguely aware that it's somewhere in the direction of Wigan, but I, I think... <laughs>
0: Well, we'll be talking a lot about Vaguely in the Direction of Wigan. Yes, I suppose we will. Today. Um, So, well, I mean, when I grew up, I grew up watching Rest, So the the prime era of Rest from the age of about four, for as long as I knew what what they were doing, more or less. Or a definition of what pro wrestling was. Up until 1988, when the world ended. Right. Um, And wrestling was no longer on my television screen. It was a a hard time of me and my dad looking through markets to find videotape of anything and finding some things we shouldn't have done. Um, But no, actually finding wrestling from all over the world, and we discovered that there was other wrestling. 1978, 1988, for a 10-year period, the only wrestling I knew that existed anywhere in the world was joint promotions, all-star promotions, and British professional wrestling. So we're going to talk about that today. But it didn't really start in the 1980s though it did seem like at the time wrestling ruled the world (laughs) however back in the late 19th century and the early 20th century there was a big burst in amateur wrestling in the united kingdom as well the industrial revolution happened and people had free time and no longer had to eat gravel for breakfast who (laughs) still did,
1: built this country.
0: Um, (laughs) But yeah, it it was like that. And um, people had free time on their hands and started to turn turn their hand to things like physical fitness and passing the time in a manner, uh, becoming the era. Because obviously, if you come from the industrial north, you're not going to pick... Nice pastimes like chess or cribbage yeah. to fill the hours before the work break. You pick amateur wrestling or rugby league or, well, rugby union as it was then. And then the southerners left and it became rugby league. <laughs> um, and it really was in the northern industrial towns and in the, specifically in the coal mines where amateur wrestling, coal mining areas like West Yorkshire, Derbyshire and, and Lancashire, specifically Lancashire, very much Lancashire, where amateur wrestling gets a, a big hold. Now, in amateur wrestling, obviously pinfalls were kind of like the definitive ender, or a submission. Um, and because there was this loose income floating around, all of a sudden people could gamble on things, and that meant that you needed a definitive end, and a pinfall, a one count in amateur wrestling, is awfully... What's the word? Um, open to interpretation. Yes. So Sub- a su- Subjective. Subjective is the phrase. If you're a fast counter or a slow counter, it might not come off as that. However, if you make somebody go, ow, I quit, that does give you a definitive ending. And you can audibly see it. Or, in the parlance of martial arts, a tap out, which has been around as long as that.
1: That came later, though, surely. Yeah,
0: I think so. But certainly uh, certainly, reading in the whole history books of professional wrestling, you do hear about people tapping out. Okay. Uh, because, obviously, in some cases, if you're in a chokehold or in a, a, a neck crank, you can't say yeah. <laughs> this uh, stop. Um, so you have to have a signal to be able to... To do that
1: What about the the old arm lift and and fall three times? Is that literally just a, a thing for television? Or, or I I genuinely
0: actually... believe that was probably an invention of Vince McMahon senior. Yeah, yeah. Who okay. was who was the absolute master of television professional wrestling? And I'm quite afraid, And it is you know it it is a still a dramatic moment when used correctly today. But I think the actual I think that's the thing really we're talking about the very birth of professional wrestling and. Uh, The finish is the thing that sets pro wrestling apart from amateur wrestling in the sense of you have a predetermined finish. Mm. Back in these days, not so much, but you still, everything pins around the finish. You can't...
1: And not just the finish, but the build to the finish.
0: Yeah. Even in a um, unbooked, unscripted, competitive wrestling match, the whole point is the end and the story to it because it becomes a compelling thing to watch. Yeah. And, you know, the amateur stuff was never going to draw a big crowd because it wasn't about characters so much until a gentleman from the Russian Empire called George Hackenschmidt came along mm-hmm. who was, you know, charismatic, could wrestle, had entertaining bouts to an extent. <laughs> and he gets together with a promoter called, I think it is, I've got the the name here. What is his name? Charles B. Cochran. Uh, I believe that he was nicknamed Cash and Carry Cochran. Uh, (laughs) As all great promoters of the early 20th century was, Cash and Carry Pyle was the promoter of... um The Galloping uh, Ghost—I can't remember his Um, name—the American football player Red Grange, not Galloping Ghost. Yeah, Red Grange. He was the—he was the promoter of Red Grange when he left uh, when he left college, and he was called C.C. Pile, and everyone called him Cash and Carry Pile. Hackenschmidt in the UK when Hackenschmidt realised that the actual professional wrestling business was starting to grow in the United Kingdom, based upon this strong amateur background, and he kind of had the first boom of uh, professional wrestling. Unfortunately, George wasn't the most charismatic of chaps. He had a good name. He was technically skilled and uh, Mr Cochrane persuaded him that a little showmanship a bit of sports entertainment if you will oh no may draw the crowd somewhat more and make the matches go a little bit longer mm. which is the problem of having shoot wrestling matches
1: yes because you have people pay however much the uh, cultural equivalent of uh, 20 pounds was in those days for yeah. <laughs> their ticket um and then they get you know, a five-second bout with the two big stars, they're probably not going to be particularly happy.
0: No, that's the thing. I mean, that, that's the, the thing about like, UFC is having less problem today when they have main events that only last 33 seconds because anything can happen in a shoot fight. Yeah. And one of the reasons why I was... I can't remember who I was talking to. maybe John Dinsdale. But I was looking at early like UFC. I've got the tapes of the first two UFCs, and none of the matches last longer than three minutes. No. And there's no way in God's green earth the UFC could do that now. Just because it wouldn't, no one would buy it.
1: No, you can get away with the odd one or two. Yeah. Um, but then again, I think, I mean, the early days of UFC, generally it was one extremely skilled fighter against somebody who thought they'd have a go at it. So. Or,
0: or two incredibly mismatched, like sumo fighter versus boxer. Yeah, yeah. Shark versus monkey. <laughs> um. Mecha octopus versus... <laughs> yeah, it was... That kind of uh, approach. But also the same problem that British wrestling had in the 19th century... uh, Sorry, early 20th century. The same problem that the US wrestling had in the early 20th century that was fixed by Billy Sandow, uh, Ed Strangle-Lewis, and um, Toots Mont when they said, why do we have to keep beating each other up all the time? Why can't we just say, it's going to last 25 minutes and you'll win? Yeah. And then we can actually, like, make people come see it.
1: And... More importantly, wrestle the next day as well. Yes. Our limbs aren't broken.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, and we can then turn it into a viable form of earning a living. Hmm. Which seemed, you know, in time to promoters around the United States of America.
1: It's sort of amazing to think of, of Americans being disgusted by anything involved with capitalism, isn't it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is the thing. Like, it was like, you know, I people this week complaining about, you know, um, Bernie Sanders and socialism. And it's like, you like the NFL, don't you? Yeah. As <laughs> enterprises you can possibly get. It's a commune. Yeah, it's a commune. Compared to the Premier League. Yeah. <laughs> How can Schmidt helps bring this diverse following to professional wrestling as we know professional wrestling today? Um, and, you know, he's he is entertaining. He helps draw a crowd. Um, at one point, there was what's best described as a riot where they went to the Liverpool Olympia, I think it was, and a bunch of the local boxers decided they could take them um, at a press event, and the wrestlers ended up chasing them down the street.
1: Was this the one where somebody got thrown down a flight of stairs? Yes. I have heard this. I did not realise <laughs> it was Lincoln Olympia, though.
0: Not Lincoln, Liverpool. Uh, sorry. Liverpool. Liverpool. Olympia
1: Um No, I went to see uh, Ring of Honour once at the uh, Liverpool Olympia. Ah. Yes, there
0: we go. Famous wrestling venue. Um, Alex Shane um, promoted a tournament uh, there. I can't remember when it was. was About ten years ago, two thousand nine, two thousand ten, and it was uh, it was it was a big heavyweight tournament. And he popped in every top heavyweight, like Generico, was there and. all the other names have gone out of my head Obviously now I'm talking about <laughs> it Nigel McGuinness And, yeah. he, and uh, he got Barrett, Brian Dixon As it was in Liverpool To present the trophy And oh. it was like It was It was really cool It was and But it's You know Big venue for joint promotions Big venue for All-Star um, But it was Always was A big venue for pro wrestling in the UK mm. Because of George Hackenschmidt um, And then we died off again because when Hackenschmidt goes to America, he fin- finally lines up this big match with Tom. Who was it? Uh, Tom Jenkins in the United States for the he- world's heavyweight championship of professional wrestling. Um, and there's obviously loads of stuff written about that in 1916. You can go find out about it um, if you don't know already. Um, it kind of kills the business in the UK because the big star has gone, and no one ha- else is as big as him.
1: As happens with every boom period, it's always built around
0: one person one or
1: a couple of stars yeah
0: and it and there are it's amazing how the wrestling industry goes about ways of mitigating that successfully for long periods of time and then forgets yes and dies on its ass it doesn't happen once. This is like seven or eight times. Um, the next cycle of success is again back to amateur wrestling. It starts coming into uh, fruition in the 1930s. And obviously, there's more money in the 1930s in the north than there used to be because of the way industrialization has worked. And it's one of the places that is making money through the depression and one thing or another. And they do have enough money for, you know, uh, side entertainments and professional wrestling kind of grows out of that especially when as we talked about the Goldust trio having their effect on american in the midwest and in and, and finally cracking you new york in the 1930s and toots months becomes the booker in new york laying the foundations what would become the wwe um that attitude and that professional wrestling noose starts to happen in the united kingdom and it really revolves around one gentleman sir Arthur, sorry athol athol oakley Arthol. <laughs> <laughs> <I laughs>
1: so mean, let's not speak ill of the dead. Here,
0: <laughs> Baronet of Shrewsbury. Oh yes, that'll be him from uh, uh, 1900 to 1987. Classic northern lad, <laughs> <laughs> the landed gentry and European heavyweight catchers' catch champion. Now he started what was known as all-in professional wrestling, as in the rules were all-in; you could do what you liked.
1: That sounds familiar.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, now we actually have video footage. Of Athol uh,
1: on 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 vinyl
0: on vinyl and give you commentary, um, and then we, we'll actually put like links to this in in the in the Twitter feed and stuff so you can listen. We're listening to it with the sound loft. You'll be glad to know. Otherwise, you just have genuine crackle in the background. Uh, the intertitles say, "All in wrestling comes to England Athol Oakley in the white trunks downs Bulldog Bill Garnon at a London sports club." So we're going to watch this.
1: I'm, I'm fascinated to see what a London sports club is in this time
0: period. <laughs> I, I, I'm terrified to find <laughs> out. I think Oakford you know, Filling is oh, going to be a very manly it's got place. It's that
1: beautiful like, silent film shaky cam thing going on. It has. That is
0: excellent. We've got uh, two what look like to be stripling young gentlemen. Yeah. Um, collar and elbow though still. Yeah, collar and elbow and a okay. cross buttock. So that opens <laughs> with a cross buttock. That's, that's a bit of eye spot to get kicking off with, to be it honest is. with you. It is. Watch this. is. I've seen this bit. Watch this. He's got like a leg, He's got like his arms in a leg scissor, and the other guy's standing on his head. And then it, a bit of a clean and jerk move going on here in a second. And where is he going? He's gonna, there. We go and oh, oof to the <laughs> And landed him on the head in a pile driver type motion. Back to the collar and elbow.
1: This is way more sort of modern style than I was expecting. To be honest with you. Like, I mean, you look at this and it looks like wrestling. It I does, it. yeah. Whereas you would think this far back, it would be... I mean, obviously, it's a lot more mat work. Yeah. I mean, that's always been...
0: And if you look at... Um, to actually, there's a lot more movement. Obviously, this is a one minute and 30 second... Fireman's uh, carry there. There's a, this is a one minute and 30 second clip of a match. It's not the the full yes. match we can't you know obviously pick the best bits referees getting down to check the elbow to check the shoulders there which is unusual he's wearing a full dinner jacket i by was the just way. gonna say about <laughs> that the referee is, is dressed like a
1: maitre d <laughs> he um, probably he probably is the maitre d of the
0: restaurant uh, that's attached to this club now Arthur Oakley did book some of these matches they were booked for entertainment that one clearly wasn't <laughs> I look knackered. Um, so, yeah, we'll, so, so we'll have a look at that one. We've got also, we've got George Gregory versus Bert azerati. Now, we have to mention Bert Azzerati. I have talked many times about Bert recently on this podcast. Yes, and
1: and our last time I was here, we, we talked about him because we got into the, uh, the Will Osprey discussion, didn't yes, we? Yes, uh, he was the greatest British heavyweight of all time. Yes, and I said I'd never heard of him. So, you know, I've... Uh, I'm sitting under the learning tree. So
0: okay. this is Bert Azarati. Azarati <laughs> was genuinely one of the most terrifying human beings who ever lived. He was like Minoru Suzuki in the 1930s. Um, the only match that, like Thez was apparently scared of him. Lou didn't say he ever was scared of him, but he, I can imagine he wouldn't say that out loud, obviously, because no shooter's going to back down to another shooter. I'll, and I've told plenty of Bert Azarati stories. Uh, This—that's Bert there, the guy with no neck and shoulders, apparently off a horse.
1: Yes. He's got a kind of um, Tom Hiroishi thing going on. <laughs> to be honest with you,
0: he was the first person in the world to bench press. Uh, sorry, lift eight hundred pounds.
1: Would I don't know what the the equivalent of sort of an old timey British Tom Hiroishi would be? Would he be the slate pit bull,
0: <laughs> Welsh slate roofing tile? <laughs> <laughs> it's just insane, and it's, it's, there's not much like. Um, Video footage, and that's the only match I could find.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, if these are uh, these video clips are cut down to highlights, I dread to think what the.
0: Uh... <laughs> so I didn't give much like to anyone.
1: Myself,
0: sorry. <laughs> so Sky Sky's struggling with the microphone.
1: It's, it's <laughs> not staying where it's meant to be.
0: No, this is this... Anyway. Yeah, but Azarovski was just on another planet as far as like toughness was concerned, and. Just genuinely people didn't like it, didn't get on with him at all. And he has a tendency to go into business for himself. Not the most possible attitude to go into wrestling. However, it took him around the world.
1: But, I mean, we are talking about a time period where you kind of needed to be able to go into business for yourself. Yes. Because the spectre of the double cross was always sort of hanging over your head.
0: Yeah. And also, there's the fact that people like Joe Cornelius made a career by wrestling Bert Azzaretti because they were tough stroke crazy enough to do it but it was a clever kind of crazy because Burt always spoke highly of them and if Burt spoke highly of you you were good yeah and that's the way it worked and you know he went all over the world he wrestled in Singapore he, re- he wrestled in Mid-South he wrestled for Leroy McGurk in Oklahoma oh wow <laughs> believe it or not was uh, their their area NWA Mid-South champion it was, uh, yeah he did he did the business everywhere um, and was a great professional wrestler um, and was really double tough and also he was a gymnast as well. He was a guy who was like 100, well, 250 pounds built of solid muscle who could do an iron cross and stand on one hand.
1: Which is as again something that has always stayed part of the British style throughout the years. There's yeah. that sort of element of, of pure gymnastics in
0: there. Yeah there is definitely and he was one of those guys. He actually started off in the circus. He was a, a circus performer before he became pro wrestler.
1: Again the, the escapology style yeah. uh, that became popular a bit later
0: yeah the the um george south not george south the the jimmy's Johnny saint jim uh, Brakes kind of uh Style of wrestling that was kind of popularised in Lancashire and Yorkshire. It, it became from that circus attitude of escapology and also strongman mm-hmm. that was really part of and the British music hall scene. We can't really undersell how much British music hall affected British professional wrestling because it was at a time when there was no TV, obviously, or little TV. There was no TV in the 1930s, certainly in the 1920s. In the 19th century, the the music hall became the thing, the place to go, and before they were replaced by cinemas you still had musical well into the 1920s that attitude of a variety show which is why british wrestling shows became a variety show yeah you know there's an attitude there's a serious attitude to this uh, of like actual cultural interpretation is like you couldn't really get british wrestling anywhere else because of the way our culture works
1: and i suppose that comes from uh, the people promoting it as well yeah because a yeah. lot of them would have come from a circus or a, a theater background yeah definitely the guys that knew the venues and um, the sort of behind-the-scenes guys that, that you needed to put on these shows.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, all, all In Wrestling was massively promoted all over the country. There were 40 venues in London alone doing All In Wrestling, um, or just for the one promotion, the British Wrestling Association. It was a monopoly at the time. Um, and they went up as far as the north, as you'd expect. And we have the Doncaster Panther, Jack Pye. <laughs> Uh, for you here it's like
1: Doncaster <laughs> being famous for its past
0: <laughs> the big cats in Doncaster <laughs> yeah. and this is actually um, from from what other people have, I've shared this on youtube on uh, twitter before and other people tell me this is uh Rotherham football stadium oh really oh uh, yeah um and it is a football ground and it's packed and you can see it's packed as well and there's a wrestling show going on in a football ground in like nineteen thirty. And it looks like a modern-day wrestling show. There's a headlock, there's a top-wrist lock, there's a cross-buttock. Rolling into a, you know, it's 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 there, isn't it?
1: The uh, the canvas bows a little in the middle, which is still a hallmark of any good <laughs> British wrestling show.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Coffee stain on the apron. Yep. yeah. Um, Jack is wearing the black tights. Now, Jack was the patriarch of the pie wrestling family, the biggest heels in the UK uh, for the longest time um i'm trying to remember the, the, his, he had a nephew um i can't remember his name now but my dad told me a story about him he he was at an arena in i think it was lincoln it must have been like um drill all in lincoln and um he was leaving he left through the front door which is a brave move for a heel yeah and the fans were complaining at him and uh, come back here again and he just turned around and looked at them and they all went quiet and he went i am earned more tonight than you did all week and walked out
1: being <laughs> pelted with pork pie, grill.
0: <laughs> that's, that's a pretty stuff looking um, cross out cross leg look there and we've got a, we've got a Boston Crab or is that a, a, a Bolton Crab am Crab. Oh, I thought crab and uh, but, we, but we got a tap out there. There was a tap out on that submission. Oh, well, there
1: you go then. Yeah, that's uh, that's solved the mystery. Then we do have tap outs. See, because I was always, I always thought that that was more of a of a later, not necessarily MMA, but um, a much later invention. Yeah, uh, the tap out.
0: Yeah, it was. It, I thought so as well, but apparently not. It does come from wrestling history quite recently. Well, relatively recent wrestling history. Now I am going to put the sound on for this one. Because this is how Pathé News covered professional wrestling in the 1930s, and I'm going li- to I'm going to lay it out here for you to listen to. Let me make sure we've got the sound. we have got the sound on. Are you listening to this? Once upon a time, there were two big, big men, and they lived in Paris.
1: One's name was Butch Kovac. The darkie was Jackknife Johnson.
0: I was <laughs> just there again. The darkie was Jackknife Johnson.
1: Oh wow! Yeah. But I can see why you turned the sound off on the other ones. <laughs>
0: um, yeah. They've also put sound effects on this, which is hilarious. I think more wrestling matches should have sound effects on. Absolutely. I'm nice spinning th- heel kick there, though. I, I like that. Slide whistle. <laughs> <laughs> he missed a drop kick from Blankway. <laughs> that was just shit. There we go right there. There we go. Hey. That was a front drop kick. You yeah.
1: see? If he'd have... Uh, if he'd have been propelled back into the turnbuckle, that'd have been a John Woo. <laughs>
0: um, you missed the commentary there. But what he actually said was uh, that put Mister Johnson in a very black mood.
1: Oh my God!
0: Um, which he stayed with him for the rest of the match. Of course, Jackknife Johnson would—I'm pretty sure—would become on to be Butcher Johnson, Black Butcher Johnson, the first mid-heavyweight champion of the world. Yeah, a long-time ace of joint promotions. Um,
1: So, well, basically what you're saying is that wrestling from this era probably wouldn't have survived Twitter.
0: No. (laughs) There'd be cancellations on the left, right, and censor. Yeah. Um, But it was the 1930s, and, well, you know, racism's racism, and always was and always will. But having said that, you know, I would discuss this a lot, I like, uh, on... Ospies, who always tags me in, very gratefully, tags me in with the great and the good of the wrestling historians of the world, like Matt and Farmer, who's actually a proper wrestling historian. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> Stalin, and Robbie Brookside and uh, uh, Ernie Crabtree, who's Big Daddy's son. Yep. Um, they, I'm on this list as well. <laughs> I, 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 I feel very grateful for wrestling. being on this list. And we get, When we had this big discussion, there was quite often in the 60s, there would be mixed tag matches or tournament nights we we'll be right wrestlers versus black wrestlers. Yeah. And this was considered perfectly fine, not racist in any way. And I'm like, eh, it's a, a little bit racist.
1: Yeah, but then, I mean, it's not so long ago that um, Ashton Smith was saying that he turned up to the studios for uh, ITV's reboot of World of Sport and they said, you're in a tag team with Rampage. <laughs> <laughs> of course I am. <laughs>
0: uh, okay. Yeah, and, you know, it's still like... Um, yeah, it's it's much better than it was, but it's still not great. Yeah. Um. And you know, also obviously, no women at all. No. Involved in any of this until at least the mid nineteen seventies. In the crowds. In the crowds, and yeah, and it, there's a very specific kind of.
1: Well, I mean, my knowledge of women in in sort of past British wrestling shows yeah. are from the World of Sport era, which is obviously. A, but yeah, it's the traditional British wrestling granny. Yeah, you know, front row, yeah, handbags yes. and umbrellas at the heels.
0: Bruno Arlington having to have a knitting needle surgically removed from his buttock. Yeah, that yes. sort of thing. Um, you know, that is that's a classic uh, trope. And yeah, and it is. I think it is that. I think you know, we talk about American crowds. I think Dusty Rhodes described an American crowd as <laughs> American crowd in the Deep South as. Uh, a farmhand who's married to a girl who could afford the dress or the underwear and went with the dress. <laughs> um, and I don't think you had that. Working class people here weren't particularly open-minded, but they were—they did enjoy their wrestling. And I think it was a much more balanced kind of point of view. There was a lot more restraint involved, um, and I think that's the reason why heels didn't have to do that much to get ahead. Yeah. In in the post-war period, certainly, um, and. The fans were more restrained, they enjoyed their good wrestling. There was a kind of emphasis on good wrestlers, on wrestling being pure. Um, but it kind of that's what kind of became all in wrestling's undoing in the late 1930s, because they kind of gone through everything. And it's the same issue we talk about in pro wrestling and the same issue we talked about with Hackenschmidt. You know, they've done everything they could with these great wrestlers that they've got what do you do next well you start having some brawls and you do some chair shots and then there's mud wrestling and then women are wrestling in inappropriate attire and all of a sudden the great london council goes no yeah and they get banned from the capital and essentially oakley is the big star and he retires because it's kind of a bit of a scandal for a man of the landed gentry to be involved in such a sordid affair yeah and th- that's the end for all in wrestling
1: and i think this is a problem that not specific to britain but specific to smaller countries because you didn't have there's no territory system no in britain because it's not big enough to the the territory is britain essentially yeah. i mean i suppose you could argue scotland ireland england wales as yeah. three separate territories but um essentially it is just one big territory so it, i mean in america you had the guys who yeah they'd done everything in one territory they'd just go to another one and basically recycle the same stuff that they did in the other one, but nobody had seen it, so they yeah. were fine. You couldn't do that in Britain.
0: No, and you're also looking at, to be blunt, a piss-poor public transport system that couldn't get anybody anywhere, and motorways haven't been built yet. Yeah, and not everyone could avoid car- Ford cars.
1: Yeah, so essentially you're within push-bike distance of the venue, yeah. otherwise you're not going. So
0: even if you had a territory system, you couldn't run the territory system because no one could go more than 30 miles a night because they'd have to spend the night out and that cost too much money and da 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 So, you know... It doesn't work in that particular era. However, fast forward ten years, and after the Second World War, there is a rebirth of professional wrestling, thanks to a gentleman called Lord Mount Evans, or, more specifically, Admiral Lord Mount Evans of the British Navy. Right, there is more posh people involved in professional wrestling. (laughs)
1: Well, you couldn't get anything done without at least one posh person. (laughs) Some may argue that you still can't. Uh.
0: (laughs) Um... Yeah, so here he goes. This is the Wikipedia entry on from uh, Lord Mount Evans page. After a failed attempt to relaunch the sport at a show at Henry Gay Arena in Middlesex in 1947, it was condemned by journalists as being fake. Admiral Lord Evans, sorry, Admiral Lord Mount Evans, along with radio personality, because this is the best name you've ever heard. Commander...
1: <laughs> Bruce Campbell? <laughs>
0: Groovy. <laughs> and minus one MP. Along with Norman Morrell, amateur wrestler, champion, and professional wrestling promoter, formed a committee to formalize the professional wrestling rules in the United Kingdom and write up a set of unified rules that everybody had to find. And it worked. This became the Mount Evans rules. And Norman Morrell became a promoter as part of a cartel of joint promotions because you had national roads that opened up and people could travel from one place to another. But also, those small... Territories that you were just talking about mm. were viable because of things like the nightclub circuit, the working men's club, yeah. which didn't really exist before the Second World War. The
1: servicemen's club, as the well. the
0: servicemen's club, the, the working men's club, labour clubs, conservative clubs, liberal clubs—all these things were struggling for entertainment seven nights of the week. You know, a friend of mine who um, lived <laughs> used to run the Mackenzie's card shop. He was telling me he grew up in Newcastle, and he literally would have entertainment every night of the week in newcastle because there would be he liked rock bands and a club would run a rock night every night of the week so in tune there were six or seven working men's clubs they all had a rock band on one night of the week and they all did different ones so you could go the whole week long
1: i was going to say was it the same band just play a different club every (laughs) night
0: then he went "Do you go to his local club on sundays because and this was brilliant sunday roast at 12 o'clock stripper at two yeah clearly bingo at four yeah stripper again at four of yeah. six and that's and then you had your tea yeah. and then you went home yeah because it was the 1970s and that seems it was just fair. grim <laughs> <laughs>
1: matinee strippers yeah uh, yeah Not sure about
0: that. Uh, No, I I don't think anyone is really. Possibly not then either.
1: Unless there's a buffet.
0: (laughs) Strippers and a buffet. Yeah, yeah. Or you can eat buffet. Ideal Sunday afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's far too many grim jokes in that. But anyway, we'll move on. Um, Away from the strippers. So joint promotion starts after the Second World War. Norman Morrell is one of them. Dale Martin is another promotion that's based in London. The Ryan Brothers take over Manchester. There's promoters in Scotland, there's promoters in Wales, and they run a cartel based on the NWA model from the United States of America. And it's possible because they have a central booking office at Bellevue in Manchester that handles every promotional talent in North America, North America, in Britain. Which means that if you want a wrestler and you're in Bermondsey, you could get a wrestler from Newcastle, which never happened before because it all went through the central booking office, which spread the weight, which meant all the promoters could look after their own businesses. They used their local guys and were bringing big stars. There was also weight divisions, which is something we don't look at these days when starting a new promotion, which perhaps we should. And there was a weight divisions from lightweight, uh, welterweight, middleweight, and... You, light heavyweight and heavyweight, and then they got expanded to um, lightweight, welterweight, hev- middleweight, heavy middleweight, light heavyweight, mid heavyweight, heavyweight. Yeah, that's <laughs> may, this may be too many. Yes, right. which of you know. course, meant but then you could have British. European, Commonwealth, yep. and World champions for each division, which meant more championships, which meant these massive, these lots of promote, lots of little promotions could have their regular star who'd be world champion. Um, they didn't do it too often. The, the classic example was Mark Rocco wanted to be world heavy middleweight champion, and he was British heavy middleweight champion, and joint promotion said no because it it stretches credibility to have that many world champions in britain and so it's it's not looking as if the you look at the like the way it was promoted they would bring in people from europe to, for european championships and stuff but it didn't look as worldly as it perhaps should have done mm. It all based around one promotion. So, you know, one group promotion and one cartel. Um, And that's basically how the business got started again after the war. And it was the right formula. And again, they'd learnt all their lessons. They weren't basing it around one big star. It was all very regional. There were regional stars and it was based around a nationwide draw.
1: Yeah, and I'd, I'd argue that wrestling fans at the time, there was, in this country, you know, there was probably more prestige to a British championship. Than there was yeah. to the world championship, yeah. just because of the sort of person that would have been going to wrestling this time, that may still exist in current days. <laughs> so I'm not sure, um, but yeah, I mean they're not really going to be bothered about what the rest of the world's doing. the 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 British championship would have been the one that that would have carried the prestige, I would think.
0: Yes, definitely. It's, uh, I mean, to me, it's, it's interesting to me that from the point of view of like they figured it all out. This worked. And they could go on forever doing this if they'd had like the sensible way of going about it. So like they could have just continued doing this and built new stars locally and then made them national stars. And they gained TV coverage in the late 1950s, early 1960s. And it becomes um, a national obsession, not just like we're talking like the biggest TV audiences for professional wrestling ever, anywhere in the world. And you know, The fact that they did carry that momentum on for another 20 or 30 years is impressive, but it could have been just rolling on and on and on forever, and it never really seemed to do that. We'll get to that as we talk about different things. I suppose we should talk about TV coverage in the 1950s and 60s. Yeah. Shall I look up a video and see what we can find? God, please. (laughs) We'll pause it here. Editing break. So, yeah, we're we're watching a match. We couldn't find anything that was particularly too early in the British wrestling pantheon, just basically because there wasn't an awful lot of tapes in the 1960s and 50s. It's
1: completely baffling to me that none of those grannies filmed anything
0: with their mobile phones. (laughs) So, we're going from uh, late 1960s. We've got Johnny Quango of West Africa. Yeah, clearly. Probably because someone couldn't spell Islington. Yeah. Um, And that will be Jackie Palo, your first major star of British professional wrestling, who, of course, was a bit of a jerk and managed to blackball himself out of pro wrestling by, you know...
1: Jackie TV Paolo, I'm doing <laughs> quote marks. I don't know why this is an audio <laughs> medium, but just just to bring you in there. Yes, That's that was it. that was
0: Jackie Mister TV Paolo, yes. and the reason why he was called Mister TV was because he had a massive feud with Mick McManus, which garnered more TV viewers than any other TV wrestling match ever.
1: I thought you were going to say he had a massive TV. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he probably did. Just to wheel it to ringside. Um, yes, he he did. Back in the 1990s, he tried to restart a British wrestling promotion in Las Vegas. <laughs> um, by exclaiming that Americans don't know how to do pizzazz.
1: Yeah, oh, yeah, and, yeah, uh, pizzazz well-known, uh, northern English, uh... <laughs>
0: Um, now, yeah, this is kind of like the classic era of British wrestling on TV, um... Johnny Quango is an excellent pro who could have a good match with essentially a broomstick uh, slumbered with an incredibly racist gimmick of being a hard-headed African. Of course. Um, And, you know, uh, having said that, it's a thoroughly entertaining wrestler to watch. This is one of the big kind of like, you know, dictamies of wrestling at the time there was some horrible stuff that went on but the guy was earning a living
1: yeah well that's it i mean what choice did he have Right. Like, yeah the, the, this was the only gimmick that would have been available to him at the time it's not like he can put his foot down is it
0: no this is it i mean the only people who actually kind of booked the trend would johnny kincaid and soul man dave bond in the, in the late 1970s Even then
1: he's called soul man I
0: mean. yeah but they went they went in the opposite direction and went full heel like proper racist uh, okay <laughs> the
1: uh the gangster's method yes yeah. the
0: gangster's approach um and again johnny kincaid was a guy who <laughs> was called johnny kincaid from bermuda because no one could spell Z. yeah um so yeah but what are your thoughts on this watching this I, in the background there i mean this
1: is uh this is more what i think of as the classic british style um i mean i suppose what i think of as the classic british style is the world of sport style
0: this is, and this is um, indeed was on world of sport
1: yes exactly uh, i mean this is something that i came to later i didn't see this at the time i probably could, well no i would have been five when it got taken from the air. <laughs> so uh yeah so i don't really remember this era uh at all um but i've seen a lot of it since then um and this is yeah this is exactly what i think of the, the, you know you've got the the blue right down to the blue canvas and the uh, the referee who looks like he's um running the kids club at butlins <laughs> <laughs> and probably was actually thinking about it um, yes
0: yes um there was a, a nice crucifix we saw there We're now going into his short arm scissors this is is essentially it's like Zack Sabre Jr but much slower. Yes, much yeah. much slower.
1: <laughs> yeah, and with less less of a less camera awareness, should we say?
0: <laughs> because they're wrestling to the people in the crowd, they're yeah. not wrestling to TV at That's all. That's exactly right. Yeah. You know, I, it's the kind of things like One of the reasons I made the early WWF such a hit was because they wrestled to TV production and TV producers were told exactly what was going on. I remember watching an interview with J.J. Dillon saying, like, we're in this big meeting and the TV producers and the cameramen are there and the director of TV is there and Vince is telling them all the storylines and I'm going, oh my God, what are you doing? Yeah. You know, um, because no promoter he'd ever worked for before. Oh, bit of a a backflip armbar reversal there. Oh, very nice. There's no denying that Jackie Powell was quite good at what he did. He did get lucky in that match because McManus was the superstar. Mm. Um, and Paolo was the ideal kind of like uh, baby face kind of... Uh, well, he's really, Paolo's really a heel, but he was the kind of guy that uh, could really kind of milk the McManus thing. McManus was an interesting character because he was massively popular despite being a heel. Yeah. Um,
1: and like the... Uh- the later American stars of um, of professional wrestling, he's got the uh, classic thinning blonde hair on top. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't be a big star in professional wrestling without uh, without a comb over. No,
0: <laughs> and golden boots along with I'm not being funny. British trunks look slightly like Y fronts.
1: Well, it's a stick of rock, isn't it? Yeah,
0: <laughs> <It's> to,
1: <laughs> you know, it's a hero to all those kids who like going to the seaside.
0: Oh, going into a head scissors? No, no, and, and sticking with that armbar. But yeah, I mean, this is, this is kind of where we're at with professional wrestling as far as Britain is concerned. By the time we get to the 1950s, there's not an awful lot of difference from what was going on here in the in, in the 50s. No. Um, as far as production is concerned. It's still not feuds. It's still not narratively led. The matches are narratively led. There is a story for you to see on the night, but there isn't a long-term story arc. In a TV sense, and there was limitations on what they could do as a TV product, basically because promoters didn't want to give away the shop window. You know, yeah. this was rather it was the shop window, but they didn't want to give away the shop. This was free. It was on national television all the time, and um, it was designed to be, you know an easily watchable professional wrestling event
1: and the tv show is designed to get people to come to the live shows
0: yeah not as a payoff or not as a storytelling device. obviously no pay-per-view there's no way to watch these matches other than going to see it live they even had a restriction on how many tag matches one tag match a month because it's too exciting (laughs) 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 and to be fair when you had teams like the fabulous royal brothers it was too exciting yeah you know so um they didn't like Putting it on too much, or too many. They didn't put big championship matches on. The biggest championship match I can remember watching or hearing about was Johnny Saint versus Jim Bricks in 1973 for the British Lightweight Championship, mm-hmm. which went on at half time at the FA Cup final. You know, and that was a massive audience to so that particular time like five, seven or eight million. Um, and the reason why is... Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, rounds. M- Mount Evans rules. Rounds. Yep. We didn't go over Mount Evans rules, so we should explain Mount Evans rules. Right. So you have a round system of eight three-minute or five three five <laughs> eight three Eight three-minute or five-minute five rounds. Yep. And then... <coughs> so you have, like, breaks, and it's a one-minute break. You are not allowed to attack your opponent on the floor, which is a bit of a mind switch when you yeah. look at modern wrestling around the world everywhere else. Um then, as I'm trying to think of the other rules, you have to break on referee's break. There's no five count. There is the public warning system. If you break the rules too often, you will receive a public warning, a second public warning, and then eventually a disqualification should things go too far.
1: Yeah, five of the best with a cane.
0: <laughs> Two
1: warnings and then a damn good thrashing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just trying to think. Nothing off the top rope at all in any way, shape, or form. That was not allowed, and you would receive a public warning should you have connected with that um obviously countouts were still countouts but championships could change on on cans on countouts and disqualifications 10 or 20 10 10 10 for outside the ring usually if somebody landed on the outside of the ring they would knocked out anyway yeah so um yeah and the crowd would go Oof, <laughs> as they took this slightly weak bump to the outside and then um sold for their heart, hearts content on the floor um, as we can see, Mr. Paolo has a head scissors on. Jackie, Johnny Quango has just got out of that and is stalking his opponent.
1: Oh, I thought we were going to get a kip up there. I but think he just no. sort of uh, realised that he couldn't at the last minute. He's <laughs> <laughs> kind of got up.
0: <laughs> a lot of forearms in this match. Yes. Yeah. There we go. Uh, well, Proper that's, lifters.
1: That's uh, surely another part of the, uh, the rules. No closed fists.
0: Yes, definitely no closed fists allowed. Um, and there was generally a, a, dis, a discontent on uh, breaking the rules in general. This is a bit Ishii Takagi as well, isn't it?
1: I, I was going to say, yeah, they're, they're having a bit of a, a back-and-forth slugfest here. Oh, spinning back
0: kick. Good oh. God, in 1966. Work out. <laughs> and then, this, this, this is the thing, like, they'll go these massive high spots and then wrist lock. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, all the momentum's gone. Short arm scissors from Johnny Quango. It's in the
1: high spots, you can almost hear the sound of monocles hitting the floor. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: And off in the distance, a whippet barked. <laughs> <laughs> and was admonished. <laughs> <laughs> Gently by a careful lady owner. Um, yeah, oh, roll. No, in the ropes. Uh, yeah, of course, rope breaks were our standard rope breaks, uh, as you'd expect in a professional wrestling match.
1: It's sort of amazing how many of these things just have stayed the course through... I mean, this is 70 years ago now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. On for...
0: Yeah, yeah. ish. <laughs> we well, see this is the thing, and this one of the things about booking in the modern era that um, oh nice, nice spinning heel kick. That was Jackie <laughs> Powell Won't bad was he? And uh, doesn't he know it? Um, yeah, uh, th- this is the thing. Is it's like I kind of get the don't change, don't change the formula too often. Like you know, um <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember. I'd probably call that but he did say like you know, the reason why the Super Bowl sells out is because the Kansas City Chiefs played one team they didn't have to play another team straight afterwards again you know and I can quite understand that
1: yeah they do the next
0: season though <laughs> but not on the same night no but no.
1: you know I think that's a I mean that's more of an argument for American football versus baseball or basketball isn't true, it true yeah
0: um, referee his shoulders were pinned to the map, why weren't you counting he was just
1: he was sipping his bovril
0: apparently so. This is an intro. And then we stop there. I think we have to go on part 2, but we'll, <laughs> we'll stop there because that was an interesting little watch. So, what are your thoughts on these early days of British professional wrestling, so si? what's the what's the deal? How do we get from there to here and do you think that what do you think is the important pull part pull out some of that?
1: I think the I mean the important um, thing to note is that the style really hasn't changed all that much i mean no. we'll, later on we will of course get into how the style bled out into different regions of the world and then filtered back in to british wrestling and sort of built together into the hybrid style we see today but i mean most of that match you would imagine you could see that in a in an indie show in yeah. Britain. yeah those those same sort of exchanges yeah not the whole match and probably the structure's different and Obviously, the storyline's much different. But the actual basic British wrestling style has remained largely unchanged since the 1960s.
0: Yeah, certainly. And it bases itself on that catch-as-catch-can style that came out of Wigan in the 1930s, which was the basis of All In and then became the basis of joint promotions. We'll probably look a little more in-depth at Wigan, um, and I think we probably should do an episode like on... on, um, the Wigan legacy and Billy yep, Robinson definitely. and Carl Gotch. We should do that separately just because if we mix it in with this stuff, it gets confused. And the, we're trying to separate things and make things easier because things are tricky in the yes. history of this particular subject. Interconnected. Yes, but also separate and the same. Yes, but yes. the
1: overriding narrative is one of Britain taking influences from their nearby cultural neighbours of Europe and then losing their way when they try to get close to America instead. <laughs> A pattern that will repeat itself <laughs>
0: over and over and over again. And then you end up with the Prime Minister, who's an idiot. <laughs> Congratulations, by the way.
1: <laughs> Worst gimmick ever.
0: <laughs> thank you very much for watching, listening to The Troopini Show today. My name's James Troopany. I'd like to thank my guest, Mr. Simon Heath. when can we find you on your social media, sir?
1: um cowering in a corner <laughs>
0: <laughs> he's still afraid of having followers
1: no no it's fine i haven't got any but you know you can follow me if you like i'm uh, at butlin's club on twitter <laughs> and
0: nowhere else because that's the only social media i use oh, yeah well there you go and we can we, we will definitely be looking at the history of seaside oh yes we'll be uh, wrestling. Yes,
1: we will be doing doing the Butlins Club and yeah we will be going to all that Pontings Pontyprid
0: in July yeah yes we maybe should go to Pontyprid in July to record a podcast (laughs) not watch any wrestling let's just go to Pontyprid hang out on the front (laughs) just
1: record the windiest uh, (laughs) podcast in the
0: history of Britain (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, my name is James Troopany uh, you can find me at Sheriff Lone Star on Twitter you can also find the show Troopany Show on Twitter and you can find us on Facebook The Troopany Show and Patreon where you can keep The Troopany Show free forever for everyone please go read our sponsors in the Empire Magazine they are wonderful people we'll be relaunching soon and you can also find us uh, find us with our partners powerslam.tv we picked up Synergy t- Synergy Wrestling this week um, they would be very happy about that and pumping things on the social media mm-hmm. and it's, it's powerslam.tv cool people and they, they give us free stuff and if you go and get uh, you can get free stuff from them if you just use the code mulletwatch <laughs> yay <laughs> everybody laughs when I say <laughs> <mullet> Watch. <laughs> take care and we'll see you soon bye per month. Get your free trial today at powerslam.tv.